Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you have been with us this summer, you know that in our our Sunday services, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, this great letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church that was in the town of Ephesus. And as we have walked through this study of Ephesians, what we have seen is that um, God has packed within every Christian every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that if you know Christ, that God has packed these blessings inside of you. And after six weeks walking through the first three chapters of Ephesians, uh, we began two weeks ago to look at the things, how the things that God has packed inside of us as Christians, these blessings that he has packed within our lives, he wants us to also unpack them, to enjoy them, to live them out in obedience in our Christian lives. And so we have begun to look at that, and two weeks ago we saw that unity was one of the things that God wants us to unpack. Well, we're going to see this week in, in week eight, part eight of this study, looking at Ephesians chapter four, verses 17 through 32, we're going to see some more of what God wants us to do in response to the blessings that he has packed inside of our lives. But before we, we look at Ephesians four today, I, I want to pray for us. So let me pray. Father God, I just pray... Um, thanking you that, that this book that you have given us, the, the scriptures um, are infallible and they're true. Father, that you have so wanted us to know you that you have given us a record of your words. And Father, you have instructed us on a number of things. And, and today in Ephesians 4, we're gonna see a few more of those things. And I pray that our hearts would be encouraged today. And I pray that our vision of who you are would be expanded today. And Father, I pray that, that you would help me just to be your servant to, to speak your words today and that you would help me just to get out of the way, that what would, we would be left with is, is nothing of me but everything of you. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, I've got a theory about fashion. And my theory about fashion is this, that, that fashion is, is like a train, and, and, and the, the world is, is progressing down this track. And, and year after year, as, as we move down this track, the fashions continue to change. But as the fashions change and as we move on down this track, eventually, many of us will decide that we're just ready to get off. We found a fashion that we like and we want to get off. And sometimes that's, that's actually quite appropriate. Um, it, there's a reason why my jeans are baggy and not skinny, okay? You don't, wanna, you don't want that. You don't want to be subjected to that. Uh, though fashion has continued to change, you know, I, I've said, you know what? The, the 1997 jean fashion is just fine with me. And so that's, that's a good thing. Uh, for for all of us here, that, that's also why you know sometimes people will you'll see they'll, they'll have a shirt tucked that you think should be untucked, and the reason why is because I said you know when 2005 I tucked it in it looked good I'm sticking with it okay uh, there there is a sense where fashion is like a train and all of us at some point get off but but here's the thing at times it's not so good when we do that at times when we get off of the fashion train it could put us in some peril it could put us in some some strange things just imagine if i had gotten off the fashion train in 1989 
Um, you know, you might be thinking uh, parachute pants. You might be thinking um, an OP T-shirt with the sleeves cut off, kind of aqua colored. You might be thinking a, a bandana with the Japanese flag on it tied around my thigh. Uh, those all would have been true in 1989, but that's not really the image that I had for you because eventually those things might come back in style. Maybe. If I'd gotten off in 1989, I might still be walking around wearing this. Yep. I might still be wearing this. Now, in 1989, this was absolutely appropriate for me to wear, wasn't it? 1989, I was a member of the Bartlesville Bruins. I, I, I loved that school. A big part of who I was, the big B stands for Bartlesville. It was exciting. Uh, I, a big part of what I was was a part of the, uh, different athletic teams, and they're represented on here. In 1989, it was absolutely appropriate for me to wear this jacket. However, I want you to think about this. If you see me this afternoon at Walmart or in, or in Homeland and I'm wearing this, what will you do? You will act like you don't know me is what you'll do. You will walk to the other side of the store. You'll have head down, no eye contact. You'll want nothing to do with me. Why is it that the jacket that was so appropriate for me to wear in 1989 is so repulsive for you to see me in, so goofy looking in 2014? Why is it? This is a real question. Why is it that this was appropriate in 1989, but it's not appropriate for me today? Because I've changed. Because I've changed. In 1989, this is who I was. But I'm not that person anymore. You know, thankfully, there's more to life than high school sports. There wasn't in 1989, but there is today. You know, and and it's sad if we're we're always identified with something like that from our past. I know some of you have grown up in, in this town um, and so you may be still identified by some segment of your past. You're part of the 94 Tigers. You're part of the 2003 Timberwolves. You're part of the 1999 Royals or whatever team you were a part of. And when people see you and your parents' friends, they take you right back to that place. And there's a part of you that's like, hey, I'm, I'm not that person anymore. The reason why it's not appropriate for me to wear this jacket at 40 is because it's changed. Thankfully, life had a lot more to offer. Now, here's the thing. I got to get this thing off. This is just absolutely nasty, by the way. Um, it's just gross. Um, but here's, here's the thing about this, about this jacket and the reason why I bring it up for us today. You know what? If you are in Christ, you've changed. If you're in Christ, if you have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are not who you used to be. And what the book of Ephesians chapter 4 tells us is, since we are not who we used to be, stop dressing like you used to dress. And he's not talking about letter jackets and clothing. He's talking about the kind of life that we live. If our identity has changed, then the actions that we adorn ourselves with should change as well. And yet, as believers in Christ, we spend a lot of time dressed like this, don't we? We spend a lot of time trying to relive the glory days of the past or falling back into past temptation or sin, clothing ourselves in a smelly, disgusting jacket from days gone by. And yet in Christ... 
we have a new opportunity. In Christ, there is something new we can clothe ourselves with. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32, that's exactly what we see. And so if you've got a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to spend our time this morning in, in verses 17 through 32. And in these verses, we're going to see a couple of things today that hopefully will be an encouragement to you. Is there an encouragement to me? God wants us to know these things. That's why he preserved them for us. That's why we're going to read them now. This is what it says in verse 17 and following. Paul writes, and says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and the righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, in these verses, we're going to see a couple of things about the new fashion that God has set out for us. And the first thing that we're going to see is this, that we are to dress appropriately. We're to dress appropriately. Now, we see this from verses 17 through 24. And it, it begins, as, as Paul says to them, uh, he wants them no longer to walk as the Gentiles do. Now, what's he talking about? Saying, I don't want you to walk as the Gentiles do. Well, if you've been a part of this series this summer, you know that the city of Ephesus was a Gentile city. It was a non-Jewish city. Their, their history, their heritage, their religion was different from the Jewish background of Jerusalem and Israel. It was a Gentile kind of place. And the city of Ephesus, not only was it a Gentile place, but it was a place that was known for quite a bit of sin. And what is going on um, in the book of Ephesus is these people who had this difficult background had come into a relationship with Christ, but yet they were still tempted by some of the things they had experienced before. See, Ephesus was a, a difficult city. Uh, just a few things that you need to know about the city of, of Ephesus. Ephesus was a place that had a large temple that dominated their city. And this was a place where people worshiped false gods. So this was a place where idol worship took place. Ephesus was a place that because there was idol worship there, there was this big temple that a lot of money was stored around that temple. 
And anytime there's a place where there's a lot of money, there's an opportunity for a lot of greed. And so there was idol worship in Ephesus, and there was a lot of greed in Ephesus. And not only were there those two things, but Ephesus also, there was a superstition in the town that said that no one could lay hands on a criminal if they were so many feet away from the temple. And so because of that, no one could arrest a criminal if they were so many feet away from the temple. Guess who hung out around the temple? Criminals, murderers, and thieves, and, and you name it, they all hung out around this temple. So, you know, to paint you a picture of the city of Ephesus, it was a bunch of idol-worshiping, greedy criminals. That was part of the, the makeup of the city. That's a pretty rough place. And so when, when Paul writes and says to not walk and live as the Gentiles used to do, what he's saying is, hey, before you came to Christ, your city was known for a whole bunch of stuff that you probably participated in. But in Christ, I don't want you to live that way any longer. That was really the bottom line. That was the big idea. That was, that was the point. Now, now, here's something that's really interesting, and I, I just want to, to mention this, this, this point, because how do, how do you and I know about the city of Ephesus? How do you know? Unless you're a Greek history major, unless you've traveled to Turkey recently uh, or something like that, uh, how do you know about the city of Ephesus? You know about it because there's a church there. You know about it because in the first century there was a thriving church there. You know what that tells me? It tells me that the grace of God is extremely powerful. A city that is known for idol-worshiping, greed, and criminal activity is a place that we know about because of the, the church that existed there because of what Jesus Christ can do. And if Jesus can do that in the first century, he can do that today, right? So there's a lot of hope in this fact. But, but, but what Paul writes to them and says is, hey, you guys used to live this Gentile life, but now that you have come into a relationship with Christ, I don't want you to live that way any longer. And he begins that by describing what this Gentile way of life was actually like for them. Verse 17, he says that they were living in a futility of their minds. This is this idea that they were living their lives like a hamster running in a wheel. A lot of activity but going no place, kind of an aimless life. That was the futility of the mind. They were doing a lot of things, but they were getting no place. And that was described the life of the Ephesians. You know what that describes the life of a lot of people here today, too. That may, you may feel like that describes your life today. You know, I'm doing a lot of things, but I feel like I'm just that hamster in the wheel. I'm going no place. My life is connected with nothing larger than me. I don't know which way is right and which way is wrong. He says that before they came to Christ, they lived their lives with a futility of their mind. He says they were, verse 18, darkened in their understanding. There was just truth they didn't know about. This whole idea that they could be forgiven, that was just a, a faraway notion, something that never crossed their mind. The, the, the thought that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that he gave his life so that they might be forgiven, they, they were that was a dark idea to them. They didn't know it was out there. They didn't know that there was something better to be had. So they were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in them due to the hardness of their heart. They had an ignorance in them about truth and about life. They didn't know any better, and so they, they spent their life draped in sinful activity. Activity, it says, in verse 19, they became so callous that they gave themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice 
every kind of impurity. Because of their lack of connection with God, because of their lack of a relationship with him, they just did whatever felt right. And what felt right usually was something that ended up hurting them or at the very least put them on a wheel running in a futile life. Paul says that's who you used to be. Remember, he's writing here not just to the people of Ephesus, but to the Christians in Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus. He says, you used to live life organized around what felt good. You used to live life living it futilely. But there was a significant change that happened in the lives of these people, and that change is mentioned in verse 20. He says, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. Now, that's kind of a strange phrase for us. That's not the way that you learned Christ. And this is one of the spots where the original language, this was originally written in Greek, helps us. See, we see learned Christ, and we might think that they were a part of some kind of a, uh, of a class or a program. They learned a bunch of facts about Jesus, but that's not really what verse 20 indicates. Verse 20 talks not of a process, but of an event, the tense of, of this word, learned Christ, is, is the kind of a tense that talks about a, a singular past event that has ongoing current results. In other words, there was a point in time when they learned Jesus. There was a point in time, I believe this is saying, when they trusted in Christ. There was a point in time when a massive transformation happened in their lives, when they went from someone who was identified by their sin, that was identified by their destiny of being judged by God, and they trusted in Christ, and they saw Christ take the penalty of their sins, and they became something new in him. He says this kind of a Gentile life is not a part of the newly transformed you after you have trusted in Christ, this past event. Well, what happened when they, they learned Christ? Well, one, one of the things that, that helps us understand that this, again, is talking about a real salvation experience in the Ephesians, as verse 21 tells us, is assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, if you have, have the real deal, if you have really trusted in Christ, there really has been a transformation that has happened in your life. There really has been a change. So that things that used to be fashionable for you to do are no longer fashionable for you to participate in. Things that used to be consistent with who you are, you are not that person anymore. That's the implication here. Well, what happened when someone trusted in Christ? What happened when you or I put our faith and trust in Christ? There are, are at least three things that happened to us and that are mentioned here in verses 22 through 24. The first thing that happened to us is that we put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, we see that to put off. We think that's a command, but really this is an infinitive that talks about what happened. What happened to somebody who really learned Christ? Well, one of the things that happened to us is that we have put off our old self. Before you knew Christ, before you had come into a relationship with him, your life was identified by a whole set of things. Maybe you were identified as an alcoholic. Maybe you were identified as an abuser. Maybe you were identified as somebody who was abused. Maybe you were identified by whatever failure, difficulty, temptation that you struggled with, all that is, an angry person, whatever. That was, that was a part of who you were. 
And that was what you would consider to be your, your chief identity before you came to Christ. What this is saying is if you have trusted in Christ, that part of that transformation is that part of you that was worthy of the wrath of God is put off. It is removed from you. Romans chapter 6, Paul will say that that old part of us was buried with Christ. It was done away with. That person no longer exists that is worthy of the wrath of God. If you know Christ, part of what has happened in this transformation is the old part of you that was worthy of wrath has been buried and done away with. It has been put off. Second thing, our minds have been renewed, verse 23. The things that we were too calloused to understand before, the things that were darkened from our understanding, God has turned on the light that we would have a capacity to know him. We have a capacity to relate to him. Our minds have been renewed. Our minds have been enlightened in Christ. Third thing, verse 24, and we have been we put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Not only has the part of us that was worthy of wrath and judgment been buried with Christ, but the resurrection life of Christ gets associated with our main identity, that we would be considered holy and righteous before God. That's why Paul begins this letter in Ephesians 1, and, and calls the recipients of this letter saints, which means holy ones. He's saying that there's been a transformation. You who once were identified by your greed and by your idol worship and by your criminal activity are now identified by the righteous life of Jesus Christ. And, and if you know Christ, then what this is saying to us is that you who once were identified by whatever sin that you want to attach to yourself that that used to be who you were. You are not that person any longer. You are identified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's been a massive transformation that has taken place inside of you. Pastor John MacArthur says this about this transformation. He says, when a person believes and confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and is thereby born again, a transformation takes place in his basic nature. The change is even more basic and radical than the change that will take place at death. I'm going to just read that again. The change is even more basic and radical than the change that will take place at death. I, I can imagine the change that's going to take place at death is going to be pretty radical, right? It's going to be the point where this you know, sinful body is going to be done away with. It's going to be the point when I can finally dunk a basketball. It's going to be all that stuff. Um, he says the change that occurs when we trusted Christ is even more basic and radical than that. It says, when a believer dies, he has already been fitted for heaven, already been made a citizen of the kingdom, already become a child of God. He simply begins to perfectly experience the divine nature he has had since his spiritual birth, because for the first time, he is free from the unredeemed flesh. The future receiving of his glorified body will not make him better, since he is already perfected but it will give him the full capacity for all that eternal resurrection life involves. Salvation is not a matter of improvement or perfection of what has previously existed. It is a total transformation. The New Testament speaks of believers having a new mind, a new will, a new heart, a new inheritance, a new relationship, new power, new knowledge, new wisdom, new perception, new understanding, new righteousness, new love, new desire, new citizenship, 
and many other new things, all of which are summed up in newness of life. Y'all, this is an amazing reality. If you know Christ, there has been a total transformation of who you are. And before we go any further, I just want to I just want to say this. I know that in a, in a group like this, in a, in a room this size, that there are some here today who are still living in the Gentile reality. They're still living like a, a hamster in a wheel. And, and I say that because I, I know that there was a time in my life where I sat in the church and I was a hamster running in a wheel. And at that point in time, it was absolutely appropriate for me to clothe myself in sinful actions because they were consistent with who I was. And, and if this is you today who are still living in that, that way of life, I, here's what I want to say. I, I just want you to know that we are praying for you. And I say that not to speak down, not to condescend, but I say that from a loving pastoral heart. We gathered this morning with our staff, and one of the things we prayed was that God would just open the eyes of our hearts that, that those today who are here, who are currently living life clothed, in an old identity, that today would be the day that the darkness of their soul would go away, that that their eyes would be enlightened, and that they would see and respond to the truth. And if today you want to get off that hamster wheel, know that the way off is not by taking this sin off yourself, but it's by trusting in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and saying that it is only through him that we have the chance be forgiven and to have a relationship with God. And I just would invite you, if you're in running that wheel today, that today would be the day that you would give your life to Christ. But for others of us, um, this truth still carries with it some significant points. Because for others of us, uh, we're here, and for some, you trusted Christ at some point later on in life. And if you trusted Christ at some point later on in life, you have a lot in common with these Ephesians. They were people that didn't grow up in a Christian home. There were no Christian homes. They were people that had come to Christ later in life. And because of that, they were living out their life in Ephesus, knowing where all of the places uh, were to get in trouble. You know, they they knew where all the prostitutes lived. Um, If that was their, their temptation and that was their difficulty, they knew all the ways to skim some money off the top because of all the money that was, was, was held there. They knew all the ways to do all of these different kinds of sins. And, and so because of that, as they lived out their new Christian life, even though their identity had changed, they kept wanting to pick up and put on old actions. And, you know, there's some of us here today that, that are doing that very same thing. We're, we, our identity has changed, but we're still living in 1989. And you know what? As, as, as goofy as this looks, as inconsistent as this looks for a 40-year-old man is exactly what... It is for those in Christ who want to live the old life of pornography and alcohol and you name it. Whatever the the sin that seeks to enslave you, to to continue to go back to that is like a 40-year-old man wearing his coat. Now, there, there are others here that that's not your particular situation. You grew up in the church. You grew up in, in an environment where the biblical truth was, was a part of the equation. And, and if that's the case for you, then, then here's, a, here's a, our temptation, possibly. Maybe you're thinking, you know what? Um, maybe I just want to blend in for a while in this world. 
You know, but wouldn't, wouldn't it look cool for me to, to do some of the things that I see in television or the movies or, or friends doing at work just so I'd fit in a little bit? Let me ask you, do, do you really want to, to put on this coat at 40? It looks a little silly. I, when, I, when I was in Texas, I uh, was involved with Young Life, and I'd go over to the high school and spend time at the local high school meeting students. And I'll tell you, one thing I never did was wear this jacket. We think it'll help us to fit in. We think it'll help us to, to blend, but you know what? It won't just make us get laughed at, like you're laughing right now. You see, our core identity has changed. Our core identity has changed. And if it has changed, then there's a newness of life that God wants us to live into. He wants us to dress appropriately. But the second thing he does is he begins to show us what our new style is. He begins to show us what it looks like to unpack in style from verses 25 to 32. And what we see in these verses is really five different commands that the Apostle Paul is going to give that were relevant to the Ephesians, and I think we'll find are incredibly relevant to us as well, that show us what our new style is. And as these commands are given, it's really interesting how he does it. He's going to basically break each command down into three parts. He's going to tell them something that they shouldn't do, something they should take off, something that is no longer stylish or fashionable to act out as a Christian. And then he's going to tell them what they should put on instead in its place. God doesn't want us to be naked. He wants us to be adorned in his good works. And and so he's going to tell us what to take off. He's going to tell us what to put on. And then lastly, he's going to tell us why. And I think that you'll be challenged by this. And, And though we don't have a ton of time to get really deep into all these, I would encourage you at some point this week to go back over these verses and and to just meditate on them a bit and see how God would have you respond to each of these things. But there's five different commands, sets of commands that are, that are mentioned here. The first one is found in verse 25, and it has to do with lying. It has to do with lying. Look at what it says. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood. So what are, what are they not to do? They are, they are to put away falsehood. They are to take off lying as a part of their, their daily life and experience. They're, they're not to do that. Uh, and instead, it says that they are to speak the truth with, with their neighbor. They're to speak truth instead. Now, this is something, obviously, that the Ephesians were struggling with. Um, obviously, not something that we struggle with, right? Um, or maybe we do, right? Think, think about this. Think about uh, your, your children who are in your house, if you've got kids. Um, do your kids ever speak falsehood? your kids ever lie? Well, yeah, right? And, and this, there's, there's a good evidence of this. See, lying is not just saying something that's not true. Lying is saying something that's not true on purpose in order to make yourself look better, to add some advantage to yourself. In other words, if I take a, a, a test at school and I say that two plus two equals five, it's wrong, but it's not a lie. It's ignorant, but it's not a lie. It's just, it's just something that's wrong. But, but if I were to tell you something that wasn't true in order to make myself look better, then that would be speaking falsehood. And, and that is what God doesn't want for us. And, and we, we see that in our kids. There's many times you'll ask your kids, did you do this? And they say no. And by the little twinkle in their eye, you know that they're not telling you the truth. And so I'm, I'm so thankful that this is only a problem for the Ephesians and our kids. 
No, this is a problem for all of us, right? We, we all have this temptation, this desire to spin the reality to make ourselves look better. And God says, that is not fashionable. That is not stylish. You need to take that off and instead put on speaking the truth to one another. And later on, he'll say, speaking the truth in what? In love to one another. Why should we do that? Well, we should do that, he says, because we are members of one another. In other words, you don't want one part of the body speaking falsehood to another part of the body. If my hand right now suddenly started burning like I had touched a hot stove, uh, that would not be very nice of my hand. It would confuse my mind. It would make this hand try to move, you know, my body try to move this hand away even though it's not there. And, and that's, the body is meant to function in truth with one another physical body. Some have had nerve damage or an amputation or something like that, and they have these ghost pains. It's not very nice, is it? It's one part of the body saying something that isn't true to the rest of the body, and it causes discomfort. And, and that's Paul's argument here is we're a part of one body, so stop telling falsehood to one another. We're a part of a religion based on truth, not a lie. Is that a challenge to any of you? Is there anybody that needs to take off speaking falsehood, put on speaking truth? Second set of commands is in verse 26. He says, this has to do with anger. He says, be, be angry and do not sin. So what are we not to do? We're not to sin in our anger. We're not to allow uh, anger to get to the point that it would lead us to be sinful. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said that anger is a precursor to what? Murder. Pretty intense. That anger undealt with can boil up to a point that causes us to want to destroy someone else. To, to wipe them out, to ruin them. God says, don't let your anger get to that point. Anger apparently was a problem for the Ephesians. I'm glad that anger is not a problem for us. Or is it? It's amazing how relevant this, this book is. If you, if you say that anger is not a part of the things that you deal with, you probably don't deal with people. You need more people in your life if you say that anger is not something that you struggle with. Because as you relate with people, you're going to find that they have different ideas, they have different plans, they have different styles than you do. They're going to offend you, they're going to hurt you, they're going to do things. And as you relate to people who are different than you, there's going to come a time where you're going to be angry with them. And the Apostle Paul says, do not let that anger consume you. What are we to do instead? What's the positive statement in there. Well, he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. How are we to deal with this? We're to deal with this by quickly resolving it. You know, some have looked at this and said that it's a literal statement that you should not let the sun go down on your anger. And I've uh, do a fair amount of premarital counseling and, and marital counseling, talk to, to people who are going through difficulty. And, and this is a verse that sometimes will come up. And it's like, hey, we, we can't go to sleep at night until we resolve it the sun's not supposed to go down on our anger. And I'm like, well, it's too late because you're having this argument and it's dark out already, okay? Um, this is not talking about a literal before the sun goes down. But what he is saying is just don't let there be a lot of time before you deal with it. The way that we should put, thing we should put on is a desire to resolve our anger with others. 
And why should we do that? Well, verse 27, so that we would not give an opportunity to the devil. See, one of the things that Satan loves is he loves it when we're angry with one another because it's just a deep root of bitterness in our soul that he can leverage to cause us to fall into sin. Why should we deal with this to avoid that? Third command is given in verse 28. It has to do with stealing, another of the Ten Commandments. He says, let the thief no longer steal. This is something, again, that apparently the Ephesians were dealing with. Um, is it anything that we're dealing with? You might think, well, no, I've, I've never been convicted of, of theft. Yeah, but have you ever downloaded something that you shouldn't have? You ever taken some property, intellectual or otherwise, that, that you shouldn't have? Well, that's, what is that? Have you ever taken some things from the office and made them your own inappropriately? It's, it's theft. He says, don't do that. It's, it's unfashionable for a Christian to live that way. He says, don't. Take that off. Get that off of you. What does he say to put on instead? This is fascinating to me what he says. He says, let the thief no longer steal. That's what we're to take off. But he says, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. That's surprising. When you think, I mean, I was, I was thinking about this. How, how would I have written that statement? Let the thief not steal, but let him be content with what he has. That's not what he says. He says, let the thief not steal, but rather let him work for with his own hands the things that, that, that he, will, he will get. There's, there's a mindset in theft that is the world exists for me. And you know what? I'm going to go get it and take it because it belongs to me anyway. It's best in my hands. It's best in my car. It's best in my house. I'm just going to grab it and take it unto myself. Paul says, no, that's not the way it is. And his, his reason behind that is found and at the end of that verse. He says, the reason why we should work instead is not so that we can have more for ourselves, but so that we can have something to share with anyone in need. We're connected with one another in one body, and part of the, the heart change that happens in this transformation of coming to Christ is that we care about more than just ourselves. We would work not to, to just hoard to ourselves, but to be able to be a blessing others. Fourth command has to do with our speech. Again, apparently a problem for the Ephesians, most likely a problem for us as well. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. In other words, don't use your words to constantly tear other Christians down. Stop just opening your mouth and spewing out criticism. Stop opening your mouth and gossiping to tear down others. It's a temptation for us to do. It's interesting. It sells magazines. It sells newspapers. It creates blog sites that people advertise on. But it's unfashionable for Christians to participate in that kind of corrupting talk. Instead, he says... Speak only such which is good for building up as fits the occasion. We're, we're to, to, instead of tearing people down, we're to take that off, but we're to put on words that we would speak that would be encouraging to one another. And as he says that, he, he gives a very interesting twofold reason why we should build up and not tear down 
with our words. But the first reason is at the end of verse 29, that it may give grace to those who hear. In other words, God wants to use the words we say to build each other up, to dispense His grace. That's His desire for us. He wants us to, to, to give grace to those who hear. But, but the second reason why we are to do this is so that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Look what verse 30 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. One of the most prominent commentators um, of the book of Ephesians reads verse 30 and says, I have no idea why Paul said that there. But as I've read this and reflected on it over the last little while, I, I see an intimate connection in this pattern of what he's saying with what precedes it. Why is it that we should not tear down others with our speech, other believers with our speech, is because it grieves the heart of God. Think about this. If you're a parent, if you have kids, you know this is true. When somebody talks down your kids, it hurts you, doesn't it? If some other children at school begin to tell a story about your kids, call them names, speak down to them. There's a part of your soul that hurts. If your kid's playing second base and the coach is tearing down that kid from the sidelines, there's a part of you that just hurts. By the way, this, that is not true of my life. We had a wonderful baseball season, great coaches, but, but, it, but it, we've all had experiences like that, right? Where somebody's just is tearing down your kids with their words and it just hurts you at the core of your heart. What this is full proof of is that the adage we used to say when we were kids is, a, is, is just totally ridiculous. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. No way is that true. It's not true with each other. We hurt each other with things we say all the time. And it's certainly also not true with God. When we speak down and, cor and corrupting talk to, about a brother or sister in Christ, God is grieved in that. That's how serious it is. He cares that deeply for us. Something that the Ephesians needed to hear is it something you need to hear today, something I need to hear. And finally, the fifth category has to do with just our orientation towards others. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. In other words, there's a way of living life that was angry and bitter and wanted to exact a pound of flesh from everybody that had ever wronged us or done anything with us. There was, there was a way of life that, that used to be worn that Gentiles would wear that we are to take off. That is not the way we are to relate to one another. Well, what are we to do instead? We're instead to put on a different kind of orientation towards others around us. It says we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another. So we're, we're not to exact a pound of flesh from everybody, everybody around us. We're not to be the, the purveyors of wrath. But we are to be tenderhearted and kind. There ought to be an attraction to the people of God because we were relating to others in this way. And what's the reason for that? Well, the reason for that is because God in Christ has forgiven us. In other words, we can be forgiving to others. We can, can be generous to others. We can give them room to change and to grow because of how generous and gracious and forgiving God has been to us. See, there's a way of life for the Christian. There is something we're to take off and there's something we're to, to put on. There's some stylish fashion for the Christian life that God wants us 
Friends, let's stop living the Christian life like this because this is not who we are anymore. There has been a fundamental change, a total transformation that makes wearing this ridiculous today. Instead, let us take this off and let us put on the life that God has called us to. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for the opportunity you've given us to worship today, the opportunity you've given us to be challenged by your word today. And Father, we thank you that you have truly transformed our hearts. Father, I look around this room and I'm so encouraged that you love us so much that you would seek to transform our identity so that we might spend an eternity with you. And Father, I pray that we would live a life consistent with that, putting on the new life in Christ, the things that you have set out for us, not like a hamster running a wheel, but things that are consistent with a life that is truly righteous and holy because it is identified with your son. Father, we thank you, and we just come before you now. We lay our lives down that you would take them and that you would allow us to serve you day by day. In Jesus' name.